Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Budd, only on 640 Toronto. Hey, good evening and welcome to the show. You're on the Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Budd. Thank you for joining us. We're so glad you tuned in because we like hanging out with you and we know you have choices and we're glad you chose us. If you're not sure what the show is all about, it's about us helping one another, just giving everybody a voice so that we really can be in this together. And what is this? This is just recovery, man. Whether you're recovering from the pandemic, trying to get past the financial stuff that you've uh, had to deal with for the last couple of uh, years, getting back to a, a job, a new job. Maybe you've got some mental health and, and substance issues that you're trying to get on the other side of, or just kind of figuring out why life sometimes is so difficult. Anyway, that's what we do here. We just try to help one another and share information that we think is helpful and uh, love you to chime in when you can and when it's appropriate so that we're in this literature together. So, you know, tell you a situation that I have, I'm a, if you don't know anything about me, I'm a, I'm a therapist as, as well as being a broadcaster. I do a bunch of things, but um, in my therapy role, I'm often, I deal, I deal with kids a lot of teenagers, mostly um, I, I, in my therapy role, I'm often talking to parents um, about enabling uh, young people. Uh, I'm often talking to husbands or wives or one or the other about enabling one or the other. I'm often talking to uh, friends who don't understand what it means to enable uh, someone's bad behavior. But tonight in particular, if you're not sure what enabling means, it just means sort of giving people a lift and a benefit when they're not using their skills in the right way possible. Um, and or they're not using their own abilities in the right way possible, going out and actually earning a good living for themselves. Um, so what we're dealing with here is we're talking about people who insist on paying for everything in their relationships, whether they're dealing with, you know, a, a child, if it's a parent or dealing with a friend, you know, are you always the one that seems to be buying dinner, lunch and all the drinks? Um, and, it, and, we're, and the experts are saying now that dealing with this, paying for everything, trying to give people's stuff as opposed to making them responsible, holding them responsible, um, is deeply seated in a trauma, which can lead to not just um, uh, you know, the giving part, but that leads to overwork and sometimes ex exhaustion from working so hard to try to give to others uh, when really you're taking away from yourself. Uh, we're talking about a woman, her name is Rudy. She overworked, uh, over, overworked to um, uh, provide money for her family and community. She was 15. She was in an abusive home in Saskatoon. She managed to hitchhike her way to Toronto over the next five years, lived on the streets, shelters, and so on. Um, she eventually went on to get married, had three kids, uh, and her husband was an aspiring singer-songwriter. So you can figure out what that means. She did all the work. He kind of tried to do his gig and get going, but ended up didn't make any money. Their relationship ended up not lasting, as you can imagine. And she then finds herself stepping back after taking care of everything for her kids and paying for all kinds of stuff for her now ex-husband. She's, you know, exhausted. She's financially, um, you know, uh, not in the same place she would like to have been because she's basically enabling other people's negative behavior by funding them. So financial enablers often put themselves at risk uh, in order to help others. They have trouble saying no. Okay, man, can you give me 500 bucks? I just, and listen, and there's tons of people who go through this with their kids, right? Uh, I, the problem that I have in the, my practice is if a parent is financially enabling uh, one of their kids or someone in the family is financially enabling someone, it's typically so they can buy drugs or do something that's not good for them. 
right? So there's lots of ways to get people meals. There's lots of ways to get gift cards for food. There's lots of ways to buy, to buy clothes and actually give it to them. But the actual hand, the handing over of dollars, if the person you're handing them over to maybe doesn't have their feet on the ground and not very stable, may be leading to their disaster, not leading to help them. So you have to accept the fact that giving is something that needs to be good for both sides. Financially enabling somebody generally means they're taking advantage and you're putting up with it. And you end up working hard. And at the end of the day, giving money into, into to situations and to children and such that at the end of the day, that's your vacation money, right? Sometimes that little extra that you give them to help is your vacation money. So you don't have a vacation because Billy needs a new car or, you know, we're not going to take a vacation or I'm not going to buy that that, you know, we're not going to buy the, the, the new, the things we need for the house because, you know, uh, we have to give our daughter first and last month's rent. I'm not saying that there's a problem helping people. Don't get me wrong. I think it's great. I think it's the job of a loved one, if they're able to, to help. It's one thing to be able to, to help. It's another thing to enable someone because they're not seeking the help for themselves. And the experts are calling this financial enabling because it's leading to a thing. It's becoming a real thing. It's it's about people having a dependency on you. A certified financial planner with Affinity Wealth Management said she most often sees financial enabling in the form of parents repeatedly helping their adult children out of sticky situations, credit card debt, and so on, first and last month's rent. If your 30-year-old son or daughter isn't got it together yet, and you're continually paying for the rent, something's wrong. You're not, you're not helping them get, you know, someone once said you can feed someone fish or you can teach them how to fish. I'm not sure I, I I'm quoting it exactly. I, I, I'm all about teaching people how to fish, you know, maybe feed them fish while you're teaching them for the first time. But then after that, they need to be able to go, go catch their own fish or they're never going to be able to stand on their own two feet. Parents typically feel a duty to provide for their kids and it can cross a line when the kids have grown up and that feeling of responsibility, you got a you know 30-year-old kid living in your house, you shouldn't be paying his phone bill, his, his insurance and his car and his gas and you know, letting him live in the basement for free, so to speak. Not a good idea. It can lead to real trouble for them, more so for you. And if you're depending on retirement and suddenly you find yourself, you know, two years away from retirement and, and you got to cough up 50 grand because Jill and her, you know, her soon-to-be new husband, who's a deadbeat. Are, you know, have, have found themselves in terrible financial ruin and, you know, you feel obligated and responsible to help because that's what you do. You, that's, you're an enabler that way. You're giving up your future, right? And I can tell you five years from now, if they ever get their feet on the ground, the likelihood of them coming to help you may not be there, right? So it's nice to help. It's also nice to help when there's, there's, a, there's boundaries, right? So I'll give you a thousand bucks. I'd like to pay it back. I'm happy for you to pay it back in 10 payments, interest-free of $100 each month. Make it easy, right? But make sure they make the payments. If they don't make the payments, you cut them off from any other future future uh, financing, right? Because otherwise, you're not teaching anybody anything. And not, it's, not, it's friends too, not just relatives, not just your children, your wife, your husband, your parents. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's everybody. It's your friends. If you're the one that pays for lunch all the time, because they don't have the same financial resources as you do, go somewhere and have them buy you a milkshake once or twice throughout, throughout the month where you're eating together all the time. But having you pay for everything all the time doesn't help them. And by the way, doesn't add to their self-worth or their feeling of confidence or well-being in terms of their mental health. 
you know, financial enabling is not just regulated. Like I said, to friends and family, it's, 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 it's not just to family. It's to friends as well. It's, you know, some people just get taken advantage of. And then, and then, you know, they're, they're called for everything because, you know, you're the go-to persons rather than look for someone else to come out and paint fences or clean the street. We go to Billy because Billy does it all the time, right? You can take advantage of someone in the same way. And if we feel unsafe, right. And we feel the only way that we can feel better is to actually, you know, give in to whatever the person is so that we can, we can do the right thing. So how do you stop? You stop by identifying the behavior and recognizing how it makes you feel. And then you stop doing it because you don't want to have that negative feeling come back. Cause I'm sure you feel a bit, you know, funny and a little bit off from feeling like you've just been taken advantage of a little bit. Right. The next step is to connect with your values. Make sure your values are what counts here, not their values. It doesn't matter what they think they need the money for. It has to match what you think they need the money for, or it's something that's healthy. So if it's for drugs, it's not a good plan. If it's for alcohol, it's not a good plan. If it's to buy something or gambling, it's not a good plan. If it's to do something that's to help someone out of a gem, it might make sense. But you need to reflect on your values. Anyway, there's a lot to think about. It's a codependency thing. We need to talk about it more. But if someone's asking you for help and they should be helping themselves, learn how to say no. And you can tell them Yona Bud told you that. We're here right here at 640 Toronto. We'll be right back. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. We've got lots going on. Thank you for joining us this evening. I'm in the studio tonight with Heather and Natasha. We're so glad that we could be here and share with you. You are in the road to recovery, and let's see where we go from here. Last week was National Volunteer Week, as you may know, and we did talk about um, last weekend, we were talking on our show about needing to do better, needing to do just a better job of helping one another, doing more for one another and so on. And uh, I came, came across this article kind of towards the end of the week. So we figured we'd save it for this week. Um, it's really in marking National Volunteer Week, uh, they profiled four Torontonians who are trying to make the city a better place. One guy's name is uh, Harley uh, Krolis, and he uh, he's a resident of Toronto. He loves his local history. So he uh, does uh, some volunteering in an organization called Toronto History Walks. Uh, his passion was ignited as a kid. He attended uh, the 100th anniversary of the CNE. Like he's just this kind of thing he does. He does all bunch of tours. He finds that those tours are really uh, empowering and make people feel better about the city. And he feels better about doing that kind of work. Another guy's name is Ed Drass. He's with uh, an organization called Tra- Travelers Aid. He volunteers. Uh, basically, they're set up at the Union Station. People come up to you and, and, and he says they ask, you know, they're kind of stressed. They're lost. They don't know where to go. So uh, he provides uh, that kind of support kind of like a information center in a mall, if you will. And then there's Olga uh, Nabatova, and she's up in Streetsville. And uh, she set up uh, props for a stage in Streetsville. She works with uh, uh, kids, a theater group for children uh, every Sunday, just gives back to her community, feels really good about it, and um, seems to think that she's making a difference. And I'm probably pretty confident that she is, not just for others, but certainly for, for her life as well. And then there's my new friend, Floyd Ruskin, and he um, he's spent a bunch of time with Don't Mess With the Dawn, but does a whole bunch of other stuff in the uh, giving back volunteer world. Uh, he's a nature-loving guy. 
Um, they call him a granola munching uh, Torontonian, uh, but uh, it's an advocacy group that uh, he was a part of. They still kind of involved, maybe not as much as before, and it feels that it can be mostly affected, uh, be effective globally, uh, dealing with the climate thing, uh, climate problem in, in, in the world. And um, Don uh, Floyd is just that guy that just, you know, wants to do good because he wants to do good. And he decided to join me tonight, stayed up a little bit later. And he's my guest right here, right now. Floyd Ruskin, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm glad to, I'm glad to know guys like you, my friend. Um, So here's, here's the deal here. So here's the first question. Um, Last week, we talked about trying to give back to the community, doing a better job, doing more, all that kind of stuff. How did you get started? I mean, forget about all the. We'll talk about all the zillions of things you've done, but, you know, kind of give me that first volunteer experience and how it made you feel. Uh, the first volunteer experience was actually at a tree planting in Riverdale Park East, uh, put on by the task force to bring back the Don. Uh, it was 1991. Um, uh, there were three schools involved. My daughter, one of my daughter was in elementary school and, uh, we went with my nephew and we planted trees in Riverdale Park. And uh, I started taking interest in, in doing that. I, th- I thought it was pretty cool. And so we did a few more. And then, uh, you know, there's a call for volunteers for a tree planting or some clearing. And it just kind of came from that. It was, <laughs> uh, you know, could, could you help us plant some trees? I will, I will point out that what was planted 32 years ago on yeah. a bare hillside yeah. Uh, today is uh, a small urban forest. So, wow. I, uh, like life, that's life cool. Gives back, right? It that's does. cool. It, and not, not only that, but you get to watch it give back, right? Like it's, you know, you get to see it grow. You can show your children, grandchildren, great grandchildren down the road, hopefully. Uh, hey, look at this and something we, you know, this was just a seedling so many years back. And, you know, and, and that kind of, it's kind of apropos to kind of being a seedling for what appears to be a lifetime of giving. Um, you're are you retired are you still working floyd i mean give me an idea of your day what you do well, I'm, re- <laughs> I'm retired but sometimes i think i'm like i put in still more working. hours than when i was working <laughs> so um but it's 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 a funny thing that whether i was a volunteer or a volunteer leader and it doesn't really matter what the activity is there's intrinsic reward to it you feel good about it of uh, doing something you also feel good about yourself yeah man. you know Look like, and the collective being with other people that are doing the same thing, that community spirit, uh, it's in, in volunteering, it, it comes out, whether it's at a food bank, uh, whether it's, uh, uh, doing a walking tour, uh, it, it doesn't matter. You, you, you feel good and you get to be part of the greater community of, for, for me, Torontonians. How, how young do you think people should start? I mean, is it something you should start with your kids when they're, you know, if you have, you have children, by the way? My daughter, my daughter's, uh, I don't want to say her name. She's an adult. So yeah, um, yeah. I got to be careful on that one. Um, yes, I do. And you know what? If it wasn't for her and, and the school, um, I'm not sure if I ever would have gotten started. So sometimes it's just one of those things. But your question was how, you know, how early how get young. your kids out there giving back. Like, there's, I'm a big believer in civic responsibility. You can't leave uh, everything to whatever level of government it is, whether it's municipal or provincial or uh, federal. Take that responsibility on for yourself. You see some something lying in the street, pick it up. It's not a big deal. Right. And just move it in the can. It's 
this is all, we, we got no planet B. We're, we're here and we have to uh, make the most of it. And uh, so, uh, yeah, get your kids out. I know with Don't Mess With The Dawn, our youngest was two years old. Amazing. Uh, riding on daddy's back. But uh, his four-year-old sister was helping clean up. The other side of that coin, the oldest that we know is was is 83. Wow. So people want <laughs> yeah. to give back. They want to be part of the community. They want a better uh, place to live. And people want to uh, uh, share, share, share in the responsibility as well. Yeah, tell me, um, is there a downside to giving? So you said to me, you know, everybody called you like, and I, and I don't mean that sort of in a, in a, in a super negative way, but you know, when you get to be known as the guy that they call to plant trees and clean up stuff, is there a point at which, you know, you, you're getting so many phone calls, you feel like perhaps you're being taken advantage of? No, not, not, you know, you know, not really. Um, with, with earth week, we had, uh, at Dome done, we have quite a few inquiries. Uh, can you guys help us out? Could you, we do this with you? And we already had a, uh, a big, uh, clean up on the on the 23rd earth, earth day was the 22nd of april we did it on the 23rd right. and uh uh we also had a clean up with uh with a school on the 21st uh a smaller one with a business on the 28th and then another school on the on the 30th so people are asking can you come out but one of the the, the benefits of probably having done this uh been a volunteer and, and knowing a lot of people is that I could put different people together with each other, even though Don't Mess With The Dawn couldn't be everywhere at the same time. Uh, we, we can put, uh, you know, uh, uh, somebody from, from B to, with A to do a job on, 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 on them uh, together. So, and that worked out really well because uh, you can't be everywhere and everything to all people all the time. So, uh, no, I don't think, I, I, I don't know. I never felt being taken advantage of. What other charities you're involved with Floyd currently, and maybe uh, some of the ones that more kind of more moving for you? Well, the charities, uh, or, 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 or I shouldn't say charities, wrong, um, wrong, wrong organ, yeah, organizations. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm the uh, the lead uh, director for uh, conservation group, a park for all. Uh, you can visit us on Facebook, uh, blatant plug, um, and uh, it's it's it's. Uh, bring people together and recognize that our public space needs to be shared by everybody. But we also have that responsibility to look, to look after it. Uh, it's, it's a very green thing. Uh, Lost Rivers project. Uh, it's it, in its 26th year, uh, started by Helen Mills and David Hoare and uh, exploring uh, the hidden river streams, creeks of Toronto and the history uh, that is there, not just our settler history, but the prehistory to the, the history before that of, of the indigenous past, because don't forget that the Toronto uh, was uh, well, living in the greater Toronto area uh, a lot longer than um, 1793. Uh, so uh, what else? Uh, <laughs> Jeepers. Uh, Park for all the, the lost rivers. Uh, I helped out on walking Toronto uh, food bank. There's, uh, there's a bunch of stuff. It's a no bunch so no wonder you're busier than you were when you were working. Let me ask you something, though. At the end of the day, doesn't it feel amazing? I it's it, I it's a reward. It really is a reward. It's like I've I've met so many different people from different uh, walks of life, different uh, uh, economic uh, uh, 
standards uh, from all over the world. And uh, I don't think that I would have that opportunity uh, without, without the volunteer, doing different volunteer stuff. I, I really don't. What I don't do anymore, and I've, I keep getting asked, is to volunteer on, on a uh, uh, political campaign. You know, putting up signs and, <laughs> and knocking on doors. Uh, no, 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 no more, even though I totally support the candidate in my area and have known him for a long time. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm talking. Thank uh, you. I, do draw, I do draw the line. I appreciate you joining us, Floyd. Um, the world's a better place with guys like you. I'm talking to Floyd Ruskin. He uh, was one of the volunteers profiled last week um, in uh, one of our uh, uh, local newspapers and just a really nice guy doing good stuff and uh, sounds like he's loving doing it at the same time. When we come back, there's more stuff to do. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. I hope you're having a good time here tonight. This is Yona Bud on the Road to Recovery. And uh, glad you guys decided to hang out with us tonight because we like hanging out with you. If you want to get a hold of us anytime, we've got a number, 416-870-6400. When the lines get opened up, make sure you line up and get your call through because not everybody gets a chance to so in keeping with uh, flowing along here with lots of good information to share, um, this is a, an article that we came across that we really liked and um, certainly something that kind of rings home to me in terms of the work I do with, with kids. Um, it's an organization called Actua, and um, they've put together uh, a program. So let me give you the article here a little bit. Uh, the program's called Build Back Confidence, and it's a campaign, uh, but uh, they're witnessing a growing and collective concern among educators and, and parents that may uh, that many young people have experienced uh, significant learning loss, uh, loss of confidence, motivational levels, and just generally just not caring as much about learning, uh, according to Jennifer Flanagan. She's the CEO of Actua. Uh, so they put together a Build Back Confidence campaign. It's looking to rebuild lost confidences uh, in young people, re- reignite their passion, as it says here, for learning, recultivate their hopes for the future. It all sounds mar- marvelous. <clears throat> so they, they led a survey, found that over half of the youth in Canada, aged 18 to 20, almost a third of them, 12 to 17, just showed less interest in school because of the pandemic, which, by the way, I think the pandemic is just a great excuse for everybody. And um, they're not sure about finishing school and what their career goals are and so on. So part of the campaign actually is um, their, their idea is to build its network members capacity to identify support youth at risk. We're going to talk about that um, at risk of mental health challenges, to say the least, supporting educators, strengthening community, building new content and all that stuff with some tools that are called STEM. And that's all based on educating kids, I think, with science and uh, math and some of the basic stuff. Joining us this evening is um, our new friend, and she is the uh, person that put together this program. She's Jennifer Flanagan, CEO of Actuin. Welcome, Thank Jennifer. you so much for having me. I'm happy it's to be here. Really dynamic stuff you guys are talking about doing here. Um, you know, you led a survey that, you know, we talked about the survey study last week was Mental Health Week, mm-hmm. so I guess it was a great time for you to, to put that stuff out. Um, but we're really talking about education around the basics, I think, which is, you know, uh, what was it? Science. If you want to take us through kind of the program, that would be, I think it's science, technology, engineering, and math. Exactly. Skills, right? Exactly. You got it. Um, yeah. Thank you for the, thank you for the introduction and for, for sort of highlighting some of the some of the things that we're doing with this campaign. So Actua is a, an organization that works across the country, every province and territory. And we 
typically, and, and for the past 25 years, have been in the business of building confidence and skills in science, technology, engineering, and math. So we know those are critical skills for the future, for for all youth to, to be aware of and to, to uh, you know, to, to experience, um, particularly important through the pandemic and, and recognizing that both this country depends on, you know, our science uh, ecosystem and, and people having science skills, but also, you know, building back after the pandemic, there's so many of our big issues in the world, whether it's climate change or healthcare yeah. or the pandemic itself that, that depend on science. So we normally do that. And through the pandemic, what we have seen, because we work with hundreds of thousands of youth across the country, is this dramatic decrease in overall confidence, in motivation to learn, in a love of learning. And that it has us incredibly concerned because we know that you know, those are such foundational pieces for youth to be you know, successful and, and engaged in the future. So that's why recognizing you know, we, we reach a lot of kids across the country, there's a mental health crisis among youth that is clearly being documented now and felt by any of us who are parents. Um, and uh, so we're, we're, we launched this campaign to, um, to raise awareness about that and to also, you know, deliver programs that would actually counter some of these losses. Well, amazing. Not, and not just parents, but, you know, therapists like me and thousands like yes. me across the country in North America, maybe the world are all very concerned about what's happening with children. Um, I have grandchildren, that, so I'm concerned mm. about what's happening with them from a parental perspective, I suppose. Uh, I got a whole bunch of questions. and We have such limited time. So let me let me okay. kind of. So, so number one, the first question I would ask is, like, are you funded by the government or is this an independent program donation based? How do you get the money to do this great work? So ACTRA is a national charitable organization. So we're funded gotcha. by, yeah, we're funded, but mainly through uh, private sector companies, some yep. government money, some individuals. So we have a, we have a mix cool. of people that care about education and care about kids. And clearly you do too. I can hear it in your voice. So, you know, I'll get, I'll get to the stuff that I deal with, with the, the kids that I do with, you know, I've, over my career, you know, probably 15, 1800 kids in my practice in the years over that, that I've been doing this. Um, and, and they all, a couple of things are coming out of their mouths these days. Uh, like school doesn't really matter. Last year I graduated and I hardly went to class. Mm -hmm. uh, that's number one. The other thing is that a lot of kids come out of, you know, 12th grade with like almost zero life skills. Mm -hmm. uh, not knowing how to go shopping, for example, not knowing how to, you know, how to pay a, a phone bill, simple things like that. They freak out going off to college or university if they're those kinds of kids, uh, because that's typically something family does or, or mom or dad or somebody takes care of. Um, where are you guys in, in, in that thinking in terms of kind of the skills beyond the sort of the basic, uh, not basic, but important elementary mm -hmm. um, educational pieces, but you seem to have a fabulous platform and access to, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids. What are we doing along that line? Yeah, it's such a great question. And, and you are 100% right. The, the bigger concern among employers, among parents, among professionals like you is around those people. Some people call them soft skills, life skills, human skills, yeah. but they are essential, also essential employment skills. Right. Um, and so things like being, you know, being self-reliant and financial literacy and problem solving and being creative in a crisis uh, dealing with failure, all those things that um, are are absolutely essential skills to any any job of the future. And you know, we're in the business of building tech skills in youth. Well, they yep. those yep. tech skills are are useless if they don't have the the other side. So our programs focus on both of those things. So Good. by 
nor and and always have for you know pre-pandemic yeah. and now especially during pandemic but it's yeah. you know giving kids real world real life challenges to solve so we get them to solve them using technology and science but it's getting them to do budgets it's getting them to think about the end user it's getting them to be empathetic you know to to communicate to market all the things that um, you know, through pandemic have been really difficult for them to have experience on. It was hard enough before it was really absent during, um, during pandemic. So we're just getting, we're getting back into the rhythm of delivering these programs of providing this kind of experience to, to teachers, um, or resources to teachers, resources to parents, uh, because you're right. And that's what we're hearing from, you know, we're just basic, basic things that you mentioned are, um, have been, have been lost and we cannot, I mean, there are so many implications from an academic and a social perspective, but also economically, um, there are, you know, a, a whole generation of, of kids who are, you know, years behind and, yeah. uh, and that's yeah. going to have a real, real implication in the future. Wow. It's uh, we got only a couple of minutes left, but I mean, I could you know, you definitely have to come back because there's so much more to talk about here because I have your ear right now. Um, and I hear you as a kind of, I see you as a, a real good conduit to the parents of, of some of these young people who I scratch my head about uh, all the time. Things see I, the, the, the concept of, of community college when it first came out that provided a certain part of education with some world experience of co-op, you know, co-op, you go out and work in the field. So things like mentorships and peer Peer support groups where they're empowered through entrepreneurialism, maybe in a way that's you know like a social uh, a social type thing that they're doing to give back. Um, do you see yourselves with this platform as much as you're focused on the key stuff? Um, are, are you pushing as the leader of this organization to kind of maybe stretch out a little bit more and, and use the voice that you do have to get some of these things across that you and I have just started talking about a little bit? Absolutely, I mean that so much of, of this work. I mean, we're practitioners. We have. You know, a network of organizations, there are thousand people on the ground delivering these programs. But at the same time, it is a huge communication exercise and an advocacy exercise. Um, and, you know, it, it's, you, you mentioned colleges and, and we, you know, we love colleges. Colleges are part of our network. Uh, so many great experiences to be had there that often parents and youth aren't aware of. But also we have been integrating what we call work integrated learning, but really is just co-op, it's a work placement, it's an internship, but it's where youth can have these micro experiences where they actually apply skills, where they get to understand why what they're learning in school is relevant, where they get to be, you know, tested in the real world. And that is, you know, the the, the importance of that cannot be understated, both from a preparing for work, but also from a mental health perspective, the confidence that that you get from having that type of an experience and for being able to interact with people that you, you know, role models and mentors, um, that's all part of this rebuilding wellness that we need to do for youth. I'm talking to Jennifer Flanagan. She's the CEO of Actua, and we're definitely going to have her uh, have her back. I certainly feel better knowing that someone like this is leading an organization that reaches hundreds of thousands of kids. We'll be right back. We got more stuff to do. This is Yonabud on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. And we're just getting ready to wound down hour number one. Hope you're having a good time here on the Road to Recovery. Appreciate you being here with us. Um, something that caught my attention, I've been dealing with, uh, as you know, throughout the, the years, if you've been listening to any of my shows, you know, we deal a lot with patients that have mental health issues and um, 
issues with uh, uh, at-risk behavior, substance abuse, and so on. But we also deal with you know a lot of young people in my in our youth practice that have eating disorders of various kinds. And experts are saying that COVID nineteen pandemic has led to a sharp rise uh, in eating disorders, something that's often led uh, to mental health conversations. Um, the an eating disorder, you know, is something that you know if it if you if it's a control thing for a lot of people, right? They, young people get to control what they eat, what they don't eat. Uh, but according to Canada's National Eating Disorder Information Center, the first wave of the pandemic saw an increase of 60% of atypical anorexia and anorexia, and monthly hospitalizations nearly tripled. Between 2021 and 2020, uh, 2020 and 2021, increase of over 45% of referrals to the program. Um, and we're talking about uh, Kingston Health Sciences uh, program uh, that deals with uh, eating disorders and mental health. And my guest this evening is the Center's Director of Mental Health and Addiction, uh, Nicholas Axis. Nice to join us tonight. Nicholas, how are you? Good, Yona. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. I mean, uh, you're one of the good guys out there fighting the fight, so you're always welcome on my show, brother. Um, Thanks so much. So the, the, um, the, the whole concept around eating disorders, for people who really don't understand it, maybe you can give us kind of a kind of a Coles, if, you, if you're old enough to know what a Coles Notes version is, but if you can give us kind of a summary of, uh, you know, how people, how young people, people generally are affected by some forms of eating disorders. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, the, those numbers that you rhymed off at the top of, of, of this moment, uh, we've experienced that as well. So it's it's something that's happening all across, not just Ontario, but the entire nation. Um, you know, and, and for eating disorders before the pandemic, it was always difficult, um, you know, to because you had so many people that were in need of service and our outpatient programs did the best that they could. We were able to maintain little to no wait lists for both our adult program and our child and youth program. Then COVID hit. And much like the rest of the population, people were isolating, people were turning to substances to manage their isolation and eating disorders is no different, right? Like you said, it's about control. And much like with addictions, it's about the control of the food and the way the food uh, plays a role in being able to uh, monitor your body image, whether or not you're being successful or not. But along with that, there comes some serious health complications, but then also mental health that goes along with it. And, you know, in the best of times, we it's a very intensive and very, uh, many times people are involved in therapy for years to be able to, to learn how to manage their eating disorder and to move on and have healthy and, and, and balanced lives. Um, but the pandemic made it worse. And what we saw was a, a real big increase in the amount of referrals we received. So for example, my outpatient programs from 2020 to 2021, we had a 45% increase in referrals to our programs. Now, the increase in referrals, it's, it's logical, but what we weren't prepared for was the complexity and the severity of what's coming in. Usually when people come into our program, the family doctors identified them, or they've had a couple of instances where it's, it's piqued somebody's concern. But because of the pandemic and the isolation and lack of connecting with people, we were having people show up in severe health crises, many of times needing to be admitted and stabilized first before we could start those therapies. Wow. And so, you know, for us, we went from, you know, uh, no wait lists and, and being able to manage people as they come in and, and very little admissions yep. to now having wait lists and doubling our hospital admissions uh, during COVID as well as the increase in the referrals. So it's the, you know, it's, it's part of the, what I call the silent pandemic within the pandemic, yep. because I say that, you know, once, once COVID's over, knock wood, hopefully soon is what's going to happen is you're going to have this last wave of mental health and addictions yep. just overwhelm the system as people yep. try to 
to get back to whatever the new normal is, right? Uh, yeah, hundred percent. I'm predicting for the next decade, it's going to be a, it's going to be a real, uh, a real uh, mess out there for a lot of people to try to get themselves back in line. Uh, real quick question, um, mm-hmm. uh, Nicholas, your, your particular training, I know you're the director of this, uh, yep. this, this department. Um, I assume that you're an addiction counselor social I, worker or something. I'm actually a social worker by training. I've got my MSW. I'm originally from the States. So not the Coles version, but the cliff notes, but I've learned the Coles version up here. Uh, <laughs> so I know, I know it all too well, but you know, throughout my life, I've worked primarily with children, their youth and their families, uh, whether it's in child welfare or child and youth mental health. And, you know, what's interesting is to see the the evolving care for eating disorders, right? Coming from a time where it wasn't discussed or it was, you just need to learn to eat better to finally a realization of, you know, the impact trauma has, the impact genetics and mental health in families have, and the role that eating disorders play in it. And, you know, the other big thing is social media, right? 20 years ago, it was very different, but now we're also having to deal with you know, Tumblr or Twitter or so, Snapchat. So, that, so that's actually one of my questions is yeah. that uh, um, the impact that the, the media has been having on uh, young people with, so, with eating disorders. We did a show last week about, you know, how people were being, you know, fat shamed and skinny shamed and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It has to be very difficult, I, I assume, I, I, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, it must be very difficult for people to, you know, try to get comfortable in their own skin and, uh, and be faced with this kind of, you know, eating issue too much, too little, uh, and then have things shifted in the, in the media that, you know, kind of body shames you in terms of looking a certain way, mm-hmm. uh, how you deal with that in treatment, because unless people shun away from social media, which most young people won't, as you know, mm-hmm. you can't tell them to turn off the computer. How do you give them the strength they need to not pay attention? It's about learning how to manage what's coming in, right? Whether it's through the internet, through your phone, through your conversations, Um, It's about learning coping skills, learning ways to be able to change your thinking. And and that's where the therapy is. But the difference we have now, Yona, compared to before, like when you and I grew up, right? We we probably knew, at least I was bullied when I was a kid, right? And when I would come home, home was my safe spot. I didn't have to worry until the next day I went to school. Right. Well, now there is no such thing. You go home, social media is right there on your phone by your bedside table. So we're having kids struggle with, you know, Instagram and and Twitter where they say, see thinspiration blogs, or, you know, you can be skinnier if you do this, or you can be, you know, healthier if you don't eat this. And, and so how do we manage with, you know, having them come in to either a day treatment program or outpatient services, but then it's the phone and, and the tablet that's competing with us in the evening, right? And with the family to, to make sure that they can utilize the techniques that they've learned. Uh, correlation between suicide and eating disorders uh, in young people, uh, something that you're seeing a lot of. I, I, I see some comorbidity stuff uh, in my practice where people are feeling suicidal around their body image and eating issues and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, I assume you're seeing the same or not. And what I would say is absolutely. I think all across mental health and addictions, what we've seen is a lot more presentations with suicidal ideations, a lot more attempts, unfortunately, some that are more successful. And, and the difficulty is, is that, you know, the system is strained and the system is trying to be able to, to provide that service. And so the concern I have with eating disorders is, is not only is the, the mental health component, but the physical component, the impact it's having on, on their bodies. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we're, you know, there could be severe medical complications that re- require hospitalization and you can't really start to do the therapy till your body is, is safe and settled. 
right? And I think the other piece too, Yona, that we're not talking about either, but it's a big thing these last couple of years is the amount of males now who have eating disorder issues, right? Because now, you know, Twitter and Instagram and all those social media apps, it's not about body image for girls. Now it's about body image for boys too. And you have to have the six pack. You have to have, you know, no percent body fat. You have to fit this way. And we're seeing a rise in, in, in male youth as well. Oh, I, just so you know, I would fail miserably uh, on, the, <laughs> on the fat count. We've only got about a, we've only got a bit, about a minute or so left, brother. Um, although I, I, you know, I just want to say it up front, I'd love to have you come back on and and be a guest uh, in the future because oh, just, thanks, I'd love that. I, I love what you're doing, and I love uh, just the way you're answering these questions. Works really well for me, and certainly for my audience. Uh, but real quick, um, how do you, how does somebody know if it's an eating disorder versus just watching what they're eating? So I think the diffi- the 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 piece that we have to remember is. When does it start to be something that is not part of your normal routine, right? Look, we all count calories or we all want to watch what we eat. I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. I probably could stand to, to get on a better diet. But at the end of the day, the food doesn't run my life. The food is not the major focus. Maybe it's my habits. Maybe it's something I do different. Right. But with people that have eating disorders, it, it, it is an intense impact on their day-to-day living. The food becomes central to their body image, to their worth. And, and that's where the work has to be done. And I think what I would say to people is that if, you know, if you're noticing changes in your loved one's behavior, if you're noticing that it's going beyond just calorie counting and wanting to be healthy and really is becoming quite more intensive and disruptive to their routines, it's a good idea to talk to your family doctor or to go to your local mental health uh, services and, and have a conversation about you know, is this something I should be concerned about? Because the problem is it will slowly evolve into something different. And in our society, food is not treated the same way as say alcohol or cannabis, but in this type of situation, right? It's, it's a danger. Okay. I I, got to cut you off. I could talk to you for a week. No problem. (laughs) Uh, Nicholas Axis, one of the good guys, he's with the Kingston health service, uh, health sciences center. And he's the director of mental health and addictions. He will definitely be back. So will I, this is Jonah Budd. 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back to the show. I appreciate you joining us here tonight. We have a lot going on. This is the second half, so exciting stuff. Stay with me and uh, stay on the bus here. Keep your elbows in. We're on the road to recovery here, and you're with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. We have a lot to talk about going forward in the next hour, but something that kind of really kind of got my attention uh, was an article not long ago. It, it's, it's captioned pain, pain, go away tips on how to manage your child's aches and pains. Now, you know, I have grown kids. Uh, I can honestly say that I'm sure there were times where they said they were ill and they weren't and, you know, kept out of school and so on. Uh, no different than pretty much every other kid, but no one thinks of their children of being in pain, uh, but of course it happens, right? According to Jennifer Stinson, she's a nurse practitioner with the chronic pain program at the hospital for sick kids. And uh, she deals, she, each child, she says, copes with pain differently. So here's some stuff we can go through briefly. And then we have an expert that's going to join us here to kind of back up this conversation. Uh, but if my child's in pain, uh, but I'm not sure what's going on, or there's some ways to gauge their level of pain. So they're, they're, we're going to go through some of these questions with our guest here and get some expert advice on how to deal with your kid in pain and how to know if they actually are. You know, it's a, having a conversation with somebody just off topic here a little bit about their pet. And we were talking about their pet not being well. And, you know, my, the friend I was talking to felt really badly because she just didn't really understand how to understand, you know, that the dogs can't talk, the animals can't talk apparently. 
So clearly, not, at least not the ones in real life. And, you know, how do you know that they're uncomfortable or they're in pain? And then, you know, it kind of stretched out to little kids. And, you know, do we take them seriously when they say they have a tummy? Do they really have a tummy or was it just too much chocolate? All that kind of stuff. So I think it's a great conversation to have. And I'm having that conversation right now with Dr. Dina Kulik. She's a pediatrician and the founder of uh, Kid Crew Clinic. And uh, we're going to find out all about that. And uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Dina. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for staying up late. So um, conversation about kids in pain, obviously nothing new, right? No, it's uh, how, how we roll. We all have pain sometimes. Okay. So uh, real quick, though, before we kind of get into this, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the Kid Crew Clinic? Sure. So Kid Crew is a multidisciplinary kids health clinic in Toronto, and we provide primary care and consulting care, all the subspecialties in pediatrics, allied health, such as speech therapy and psychology, et cetera. And we have dental partners all under one roof. So we say one stop for kids' health. That's brilliant. Thank That's you. Just, no, 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 seriously. I almost want to have a kid just so I can use the service. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so here's the first question that, that we're, we're talking about. If, my, if, if a person, if their child is in pain and they're not sure what's going on, what are some of the ways that they can actually gauge uh, their levels of pain? Well, it really depends on the child. So obviously a young child, a young toddler or a baby who's not yet speaking, it's obviously a lot more challenging to ascertain what might be the cause. So for those younger babies, we often watch like, what are they doing? Are they touching certain body parts? Are they grabbing their ears? Are they touching their chest or their diaper area? Are they having challenges with feeding, for example, where that might be because of ear pain or mouth pain? Do they have a fever? Do they have a cough? Do they have other symptoms that might be helping us to decide where might their discomfort be coming from? And then obviously older children, if they're verbal, can more easily tell us usually what their concern might be. Of course, there's many children that have challenges describing their pain to us, whether they have developmental challenges or behavioral challenges. Mm -hmm. Those children sometimes are more challenging to figure it out, just as would be the case with the baby. So there's a, some stuff I read recently. I don't know how you feel about it, but they were talking about using diagrams uh, so your kid can actually point to the parts of their body that hurt or ask them to draw a picture of the thing of the parts of their body that hurt. Is, is that something that you you know think is, is valid or is it just a kind of an old wives tale, so to speak? Well, sometimes I think it depends on the developmental stage and the age of the child. My own kids, I have four. My kids are between the wow. ages of four and 11. Yeah, busy, busy family. Um, <laughs> they luckily are at a place in their ages that they can tell me what they're feeling, right? So I, right. I wouldn't have to ask my four-year-old to draw me a picture. He would laugh at me and say, but I'm telling you my arm hurts, right? But a younger child or a child that has some developmental challenges, you might want to use pictures or um, you know diagrams or even just pointing to areas. It doesn't have to be with words. They can sometimes show us, you know, physically what is bothering them. Four kids, huh? Four kids. Yeah. Wow. And you three don't, dogs. You don't, you don't see enough of them at work. <laughs> I like children. I like children. I like organized chaos. I say. Oh, you're amazing. I, I, I'm liking you more by the moment for sure. Um, what, what do I need to know about giving my kids uh, over the counter medications, pain medications? You know, it seems to be Advil, Motrin, Tylenol, Tempra. They were around in my day, still seem to be the go-to. Um, how, do, how should parents, should they need to be careful with this? Or I mean, can you provide it? You know, when my kids were a little bit warm and, you know, weren't sleeping and a little bit, uh, you know, scratchy throat, we immediately threw, you know, the baby Advil at them, the baby Tylenol at them. 
um, or and as they got older, the same thing. Uh, is this something that parents can do feeling some comfort or should they be cautious? I think generally speaking, parents can use these kind of medicines that are over the counter. I do mm-hmm. recommend though, always for families to review their child's weight with mm-hmm. their doctor to know for sure what the best dose is, because many families will use too much or you're at risk of using too little. And if you don't know exactly your child's weight, that can pose a challenge. And then also the dosing frequency. So acetaminophen, that being Tylenol or Tempra, can be given every four to six hours. And ibuprofen like Advil or Motrin can be given every six hours. So I recommend for families to review with their healthcare provider what the child's recent weight is. Like we do this for families at Kid Crew. On each visit, we write down for them their child's current weight. And actually we write down the dose of ibuprofen and acetaminophen for them should they need post-vaccine, for example. And then when parents give the medicine, I recommend that the caregiver writes down how much they gave and what time. So if there's another caregiver that comes along and isn't quite sure when, that we're not giving too much or too frequently. I love it. Um, my kid, if a kid has uh, headaches, you know, or they complain constantly about a stomach ache or a headache, um, but in headaches in particular, um, is there something that parents can do? Like, I know when I get headaches, you know, I, I suffer from mild migraines, so I need to be dark. It needs to be dark. I need to relax. It needs to be quiet. Um, can we do the same thing for kids? I mean, you can't just keep throwing pills down their throat for sure. Um, you know, life, people are talking about things like lifestyle changes in this article, uh, like getting plenty of rest, staying physically active, eating healthy meals and snacks. I mean, kind of the stuff you would go, duh, you know, makes sense. Right. Um, but if a kid is frequently having headaches, um, my obvious thinking would be you get to a specialist, right. Or at least to their family doc. Um, but what can you do if it's just something that you're going to sort of have to cope with? Well, I think for the occasional headache or belly pain, to use over-the-counter medicines is reasonable. If a family's finding they're having to give pain medicine more than once a week, or there's you know concerning symptoms, the child's vomiting, unable to attend school or daycare, waking them up in the middle of the night, those sorts of things, absolutely you should review with your healthcare provider. Those kids need to be examined. We need to make sure we don't need to do any investigations like imaging for head uh, pain, et cetera. But if it's an occasional use that typically is okay with the appropriate doses and dosing strategy we we spoke about, but certainly if you're needing to give kids medicine frequently, or they're having those kind of red flags, like waking at night with pain, definitely you want to see your doctor in person. Uh, We only got a little bit of time left. I'd love to have you come back on again, uh, for sure, because we just never going to have enough time. Uh, But uh, same thing with tummy pain, right? Pain scales, uh, you know, with when I deal with patients and I'm talking in my practice, and we're talking about uh, levels of anxiety, levels of depression, you know, one to five, is it five being a lot, one being mild, Uh, good to do with kids as it relates to pain scales? Helpful, but I do find that kids are get confused by these sort of things, right? Mm -hmm. Like even adults, like if you say, how's your pain now? They might think about it. If you ask them in an hour, is the scale really the same? There are, there is some evidence that pain scales are helpful. We use them in the emergency room all the time. But if you're trying to compare one moment to another, I think it's, you know, oftentimes with the young kids, especially, I would rather ask something like, is it a little bit? Is it a lot? Is the worst pain you've ever had? You know, like more kind of less granular and more big picture. But I'm also looking at how is a kid behaving? I mean, some children will say they're in an awful lot of pain and they're running around the exam room. Like, I'm not so worried about you, depending on, on what you're saying. It's also much more for me about the clinical picture. What is a child doing in front of me 
Are they drinking? Are they interacting? Are they moving around? And I use that much more, that clinical judgment piece versus just what they're saying all the time. Real quick, we got about 30 seconds. Uh, I'm talking to Dr. Dina Kulik. Uh, she's the pediat- pediatrician and the founder of a uh, uh, Kid Crew Clinic. You have to check them out if you've got kids. Real quick, um, pandemic, lockdown, isolation. You must be very busy with kids that are having a difficult time sleeping. Um, are you seeing a big increase in that kind of stuff? For sure. I mean, it's been two years of many phone conversations and in-person visits for kids that are sick. Still, parents are very, very stressed about it. I do not think any numbers have gone down from what I can see, though, of course, kids and most adults don't have access to PCR testing and rapid testing seems less and less accurate with each strain that comes. Certainly still very, very busy with viral illnesses. Luckily, kids do mostly very well with COVID and it's flu-like illness and they're not very comfortable for a few days, but the illness passes pretty quickly for most. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Dina Kulik. We'll have her back on again. We're going to come back. We've got more stuff to do here on The Road to Recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to The Road to Recovery. Thank you so much for joining us. You, I am your host, Yona Bud, and we're glad you could join us this evening. Uh, it's around 1019. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones? Well, your animals, your pets, if you don't know where they are, you should probably check them out, see where they're supposed to be. And if you're having a problem, you call 911 right away. If you need to get a hold of us for any reason, chime in on any of these conversations we're having for the next couple of segments here. 416-870-6400 or 888 We want to hear from you. It's Mother's Day. Big shout out Mother's Day message to everybody. So if you're mother, we want to hear from you so we can stop what we're doing and wish you a happy Mother's Day on behalf. All of us, Natasha, myself, Heather, and everybody involved in the show, we just want to wish you guys and gals out there the very best parenting day ever. Mother's Day is a special day, but, you know, not all of them, not everyone's a mother. Some of them are just, you know, uh, filling in stepmothers, uh, you know, dating the father or the mother of the, one of the kids, but they're parenting, right? So we have to recognize that as well. So any woman that's there tomorrow, female that's out there that identifies as a mother in any way, shape, or form, all of the best to you. You know, on a sliding down to a bit of a more sensitive subject, I'm going to try to spin this so it's more positive, but the conversation is about baby boomers and how they're changing the way that we, that, that, that we die. And, you know, it kind of takes me to a place. Um, so my father, who's now uh, almost 96, God willing, and my mom, who just passed, was close to 95 a couple of weeks away. And my father, years ago, maybe five or ten years ago, I remember, but it sat, maybe closer to ten years ago, sat me down, and, uh, and my wife, um, who is really his confidant, um, and we sat down and he said, listen, I don't, I don't want to die in a home. I don't want your mother to die in a home uh, or in a hospital. Uh, we want to be able to, uh, if we're going to, the time comes when it comes. I said, sure, Dad, when you're 120. Anyway, and uh, so uh, he wanted to pass it home. And we just thought initially, my wife and I, and that that was just crazy, uh, you know, doctors and nurses, and you know, here's the fortunate thing though, my parents, uh, my father's, thank God, is healthy. My mom really passed away healthy. She died of, of of rapid dementia and couldn't swallow or chew. But you know, other than that, she was you know healthy. She didn't, uh, thank God, have a horrible disease or anything to make her life difficult towards the end. But the process of dying at home. And being involved in the process with her and the dignity and the respect 
and the ability for my dad to be there 24-7. Had my mom been in a hospital for whatever reason or in a home somewhere where they couldn't have been together, uh, he would have been there day and night. It would have killed him too. But being that we were able to you know, put it together so that they were able to pass at home um, in a she was able to pass at home, God forbid. She was able to pass at home in a in a in a nice pause, you know, in as positive a way possible with her family around her and her own clothes and listening to music that she liked. And you know, up until the fact time that she couldn't eat anymore, you know, eating food that worked for her. And people could come and visit, you know, that when it was convenient for my dad. My dad could see her every day. So going back to this story, it's about being able to pass with dignity here. And that's really what this this subject is about. I really want to look at it that way with y'all, as opposed to you know, or kind of a negative subject to talk about. Because at some point in time, we're all going to go right. I'm hoping I'm not going to go for a very long time. But you know, now we're talking to people. You know, we're talking about people living way past 87 is kind of the next number. We'll get to that here in a second. But you know, living to 90, 95, whatever, um, is remarkable. And it's not just related to people who are seniors. This article talks about people who, who unfortunately, God forbid, right, have some tor- type of, uh, of uh, illness that's, you know, going to be life-ending uh, in a terminal way. So the, the, the palliative care at the end is so, is so critical. And it also talks about Canadians who are, ta- you know, who, who, if in, who if diagnosed with something that requires, you know, all kinds of treatment, Many have thought, you know, thinking about making choices that just say, you know, we'll end treatment early, maybe not at all. So the quality of my life towards the end, even if it's shorter, is a better quality of life. But Statistics Canada reported uh, uh, this week that showed what an official called date with demographic destiny. In the next 25 years, the number of Canadians over the age of 85 will triple. So that says a lot about our medical programs, says a lot about what we're eating, says a lot about being more fit as we get older. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable number, my friends. Uh, A better approach to dying uh, is needed in order to uh, get out of one's own suffering. So the the article goes on to talk about the the fact of dying and the, you know, that, that negative um, uh, mindset, that anxiety, that fear uh, can often make, you know, end of, end of days, end of months, end of years uh, horrible for people because they're, they, they don't feel comfortable in knowing what that last part's going to be. You know, and, and you know, I, I don't know what kind of person you are. I'd love to hear from you. 416-870-6400. I know it seems like a bit of a morbid subject, but seriously, you know, being able to take our life in our, con- in, in our hands and control, be able to control our lives. I think we should be able to control what happens when we get to the end of that too, to some degree, right? Whatever seems to make sense and work for you. I, I, I personally want to go at home. I don't want to have a lot of tubes and pipes and things to keep me going if I'm not, you know, healthy enough on my own to do that. But, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of people who are reaching out for new kinds of treatments, like a lot of people using cannabis, for example, uh, using a, a, a sort of uh, uh, intense therapies with psilocin and uh, magic mushrooms, if you will. Uh, um, so, so they're, you know, people are trying different things to deal with their pain uh, towards end of life, uh, you know, counseling, they're talking, more people are going to counselors to talk about end of life when they get to that stage. But in terms of actually putting together a plan, 
you know, if you're at that age where, you know, maybe the next 10, 10 20 years, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're getting to 110, 120, and, uh, you know, we just say that to make sure that everyone has a long life. But, you know, in seriousness, you know, into your 90s, mid-90s, or, you know, early 100s is like a regular thing if you look in the obituaries, which is, you know, not a fun thing to do. But um, if you look there, you can see the ages, right? For, for the most part, the ages are getting older and older. People dying in the 103, 104, 102 isn't so rare anymore. So planning for it, thinking about it, putting it in your will that, you know, I want to pass at home. Here's how I want to do it. So going back to my the story with my mom, you know, there's an organization here in Toronto. I mean, there's many, not many, but there's several palliative care um practitioners in, in, in Canada and in Ontario and Toronto, um, and there's organizations and, and clinics out of the hospitals that do that. You know, it's got to make more sense. Let's get to the nuts and bolts here for a second. It's got to make more sense, economic sense, to have someone come to your house, a nurse once, twice, even three times a day, a doctor once a day, once every couple of days, you know, being mo- monitoring towards the end versus taking up a hospital bed and the equipment and the nursing staff. So, and it provides for more of an opportunity for people to get the care they need um, custom tailored. So uh, there is an organization uh, in, in, in Ontario and in Toronto uh, that provides um, government su- supplies care um, for uh, those that are in need. And my mom had like three different people coming every day, morning, noon, and evening. Um, and sometimes they came back again to check her stuff later in the in, later at night, all paid for by the, by the government. Um, I believe it's the provincial government. I could be wrong. Um, but you know, my, my wife took care of all that kind of stuff, organized all that kind of stuff. So we had nurses coming and then we were fortunate enough to be able to scrounge enough money together, a bunch of us and you know, a pretty big family. And we were able to support, uh, the needs for my mother to have some private care towards the end. Uh, but being that it was at home, I got to believe was much more cost effective for you and me as taxpayers. So, and the expanding access, not only to doctors and nurses, but counselors and social workers, grief experts, special management of medications and home environment specialists is, is where we're going here. And I think it's a wonderful story. I think this is a wonderful situation. Not that we should be thinking about death in that way, that it's a wonderful thing, but it's going to happen. And I get great comfort in knowing that as we get, as I get older here, that this is going to become more and more of a norm. More people will have babies at home. More people will, will have, uh, will, will, will recover at home. You know, they'll have procedures and then get home sooner than later to, to recover versus sitting in hospital beds for two or three days, uh, which is a task for on everybody. And frankly, not the greatest place to be. I mean, I know, uh, our, our, our medical people try, try hard and they work hard and they're, they're complete, completely dedicated, but, Hospital bed's not the same as mine, man. It's just, it's just is what it is, right? Um, so in thinking about it, you know, if you're at that stage in your life where, you know, you're putting a will together and you're, you know, perhaps, you know, planning your, your end of life uh, requirements and, and, and needs, you know, think about how that's going to work out. And if you're fortunate enough to not need a lot of medical attention, you know, to be at home towards the end or even as you, as the end comes near, um, for my first hand, um, I think made a huge difference in my family uh, in terms of how that all worked out. Uh, a survey from the National Institute on Aging found that almost 100% of people wanted to live independently in their own homes as long as possible. A study from the Canadian uh, Frailty Network published in 2000-something, 18 here, showed three-quarters of people in one hospital say they would rather pass away at home. 
Um, so over time, that number is changing. It's increasing more people. Uh, 60% of Canadians uh, right now pass away in hospital. Uh, less than 50% who die receive the palliative care that they need. Uh, and the stats go on and on and on. Bottom line is, I think it's just better to stay at home as long as you can, for as often as you can, as much as you can, uh, for your, you know, to recover from treatments and so on, just to, you know, have that cozy kind of feeling as uh, life comes towards the end and hopefully a long, long, long time away for all of you. When we come back, we're going to talk about another kind of a trip, um, Pearson Airport and just getting out of town. I'm doing it in a few weeks, and I really want to share my anxiety around that. We'll be right back. Yonabud 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Road to Recovery in our second hour. Still a bunch of stuff to do, so thanks for sticking with us. Hope you're having a good night. Man, was it a nice day today. I'm going to get to uh, how this was a life-changing kind of day for me uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, really cool story. We'll do that at the end. Send you off with something uplifting, I hope for sure. Um, I'll tell you, I'm nervous. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really nervous. I got anxiety issues anyway, but this kind of really is freaking me out a little bit. Watching what's going on at Pearson, uh, passengers departing from Toronto Pearson Airport. I mean, they're being asked, according to this article, to pack their patients. Seriously, with long lines for security being reported on Monday in a statement, Global News, our partners, um, the, they, they, they talked about passengers have been experiencing longer than expected wait times, uh, CATCSA, uh, security points. That's the, uh, people that check us through the, you know, all the metal detectors and all that. We've been working with our partners at, uh, CATSA to manage the flow of passengers as best as possible, according to the experts. That's the Canadian Toronto, uh, Greater Toronto, excuse me, Greater Toronto Airports Authority. They're the ones talking about the um, their partnership with CATSA, which are the you know the security-type people. Passengers flying from Pearson are, are asked to pack their patients, arrive early, check their flight status with their airline on our website prior to leaving the airport. So I'm going to go backwards to the story that we're going to do towards the end here about mobility because I got myself a mobility scooter, and it's the kind that you can fold up. I'll tell you more about it you know, when we come back up to the next break. But you can fold it up and take it right with you to the gate. I'm freaked out thinking about sitting on this freaking scooter and all these people in front of me standing and like when I see the, our, our, our excellent partners in, on global news uh, on the TV side uh, showing phenomenal uh, coverage of, of, of these stories and you see seas and seas of people. I mean, seas as in water. There's just a whole flood of all kinds of people and, and luggage and luggage carts. And man, someone's going to run that luggage cart into me for sure. Like I'm just like, I, I, I'm off into like this anxious moment. Uh, 416-870-6400, Two two five eight two five five. Have you traveled lately? Do you have? Call me right now and calm me down. Tell me what your experience was like. Uh, the 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 GTAA, the the Greater Toronto um, Airport Authority, said employees are doing their very best to move passengers through the line. We ask that passengers try to treat our employees with respect. Like we should do that, anyways, guys and gals out there, folks. We should definitely be treating everybody with respect these days. We've all been through more than enough. Uh, we don't need to get abused by each other. Um, the the, the um, transit authority people, the, the security folks, suggested that seven factors are to blame for the delays. Of course, there's an excuse, right? In a statement, the Crown Corporation said that they're not immune to recruitment and retention challenges being experienced by the broader aviation industry. Well, what that means is during the pandemic, they, they let a lot of people go, fired a bunch of people, laid a lot of people off, and they found other jobs somewhere else doing something else. 
So now they're trying to recruit people, and they haven't done enough training because you know they're not supporting the training as much as they need. So CATSA has been actively supporting and screening its screening contractors as they take additional measures to ensure effective recruitment and candidate development. Blah 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 blah. Either way. Huge lineups at the airport, right? These challenges are being addressed with the ongoing ramp-up of staff and continued information-sharing cooperations among airport and airline partners. Yeah. Um, so they said also that the resources are scheduled according to airline traffic, which was pre-pandemic, could be cross-utilized more effectively between the transborder and domestic and international checkpoints due to staggered passenger peaks. But as travel ramps up again now, the corporation said that there's simultaneous peaks make it more difficult to allocate. So it's kind of like they're not organized around the flood of people that are requiring, you know, the screening and, and what's what's needed to get through uh, the airport. So, I mean, I've got some real concerns about going to the gate. Um, my, my wife tried to check in. She was off to a, to a trip to, uh, to the U.S. not long ago for business. Um, we had a heck of a time scanning her passport. The, the scanning app didn't work great off the phone. We had to kind of do it on a PC. So, or on a computer, I should say, uh, regardless of whether it's a PC or an Apple, it shouldn't matter. Um, but the, the, the bottom line is, it's not the, I haven't traveled in years, man. <laughs> like it's been so long since I've been on an airplane, like for real. Um, any of the traveling we've done in the last four or five years has been basically, uh, driving, driving trips, uh, because my mobility is a big deal. I can't get around. I got problems walking and I'll get to that in a minute. I'm just keep giving you teases for our, uh, our last segment story. But the, you know, I, I'm concerned about traveling. I want to hear from you, right? Give me a call. 416-870-6400. And if you're a mom, or a grandmom, or a stand-in mom, or serving as a mom, or in one way, shape, or form taking care of, you know, kids at some level, call me right now so I can wish you all a happy Mother's Day, 416-870-6400, or 888-225-8255. You deserve it. Yeah, man. It's time to do that. Maybe a trip is in, is in, is due. Maybe it's time now that things are getting better. And by the way, this whole pandemic thing seems to be getting a little bit better. Things are calming down. Our wastewater indicates that, you know, we're not spreading like we used to. More people are being uh, properly um, vaccinated. Things are just kind of almost getting back to a livable way to move forward. Not like it used to be but like it's going to be now moving forward. It's going to change. You're always going to have to wash your hands more carefully now. You're always going to have to have a mask in your pocket for those times you go, uh-uh, don't really want to be here. Too many people coughing and sneezing. Throw on the mask. Easy to do, right? Get home, you throw the thing out. So back to travel. I'm nervous. I'm concerned. I have real concerns about what you know what it takes to um, to check in these days, the whole process of of um, of just, you know, getting to the airport. I'm concerned always that you know, the Uber person is not going to show up on time. I'm going to be late. i got to get up super early, which I'm not really used to. I don't normally get up at that hour. Um, but the concern that I have is the processing of people at the airport. It didn't look like it was flowing very well. And what used to be online stuff um, isn't the same anymore now because with the with COVID and pre, you know pandemic-type issues, we're now looking at situations where the check-in process is much more complex. Uh, and as much as it's, you know, we're set up to try to do it all remotely, you know, the, ro- the remote scanning programs and all that kind of stuff don't work nearly as, as well as you'd think they would. So here's my plan. My plan is, so, I, so I've got extra luggage now. I'll get to that in our last segment. I got this, 
this mobility device I'll share with you. I'm so excited. I can hardly wait to tell you my story. But um, I hope you like it too. So if you, by the way, if you're somebody with a mobility issue, you know, someone that uses a scooter or a wheelchair or anything like that and travels, do really need to hear from you. 416-870-6400-888-225-8255. Call me right now. Also, big shout out to my buddy Dennis, who's uh, listening in always. And I uh, just want to let you know we're thinking about you all the time, Dennis. Hope you're well. But, you know, if you're in a mobility scooter, and uh, why did I put that together with Dennis? Because I know Dennis has some challenges, and he's, you know, he can't see is one of the challenges, and he's got other physical ailments. So I just came to mind. I want to give him a shout out like I try to do every week. But back to this mobility thing. If you if you use mobility devices and travel by, by plane in particular, love to hear from you. 416-870-6400. And we're standing by to take your call. So my plan is to call Uber, get there super early, um, you know, get myself lined up and ready, get through the gate and wait. And I'd much rather wait on the other side of it all and have more than enough time to deal with um, my my uh, my check-in and so on. Like I said, I have some mobility issues, so for me, check-in won't be as easy as it is for most people. And uh, I'll get to that in a little bit because I think, I, again, I, it's a very exciting story. For, at least exciting. I feel excited to tell you about it anyway. So moreover, the, the, my plan to get there on time, plan to give myself more than enough room, plan to pack some some snacks and stuff so I'm not starving and I don't get grumpy, um, plan to be as polite as I possibly can with everyone that I need to interact with, even if they aggravate me and make me angry. I'm going to keep myself in check because I know that's a horrible way to start a vacation. I haven't been away in years. Uh, I get to travel with my three boys and some of their best friends on a, on a trip to an island where we get to hang out for three, four days. And then my wife joins me for three, four days. And they all, the kids all go home and it's just her and I on a beach in the sun. And oh my goodness, I can just like smell the water right now. Getting there though is a bit of an issue for me. I mean, it is under the best of circumstances, the best of times. You got to know that, right? I, I mean, to be fair, um, pandemic, no pandemic, you know, getting to an airport, traveling um, between OCD, ADD, and anxiety, I have real issues getting ready. Things have to be perfect. I pack it the night or two before. I lay my clothes out maybe four or five days before. Everything has to kind of go together properly. Everything has to have its place. Everything has to fit nicely. I don't crunch or, or squeeze or push anything into my suitcase. And I got to do, I'm trying to do all of this with carry-on. Plus, the thing I'm going to tell you about here when we come back from break. So as soon as we come back from break, I'm going to tell you how my life changed for the better uh, starting Friday morning. Yonabud 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back, and thank you for joining us. This is the last little leg of our Road to Recovery trip today. But we so much thank that we so so much thank you. We we thank you so much uh, for being here with us and being part of the show. I love you guys and gals out there. You all, you people that uh, participate, and all of our listeners and callers and experts out there. Just you know, I look forward to it. I really do. I look forward to my Saturday nights with you all. And uh, just thank you so much for giving me the ability and the opportunity to share and be part of your lives as you're a part of my life. And uh, yeah, it's all good. So let me tell you something here. Um, so I have issues with my lower back. Uh, 
so such that I can't walk. I, I you know I can stand up. I can walk around my my apartment nicely and everything, but I can't walk really to my elevator without my legs. So it's it, without my legs starting to be you know ex- exceptionally painful, right? So mostly like sciatic pain. If you've ever had that, shoots down your cheeks or your bum and down through your leg. Mine goes right into my ankle, both legs. Uh, every time I load my spine. So loading your spine when you stand, when you walk, that's a load. When you unload, um, often it's to be able to you bend. You can bend forward. You can touch your toes to take the pressure off so i've been walking around for the most part um for the last number of years uh everywhere i go i basically have to uh, bend over touch my toes sit on a bench um and it's really it changed my life i wasn't able to uh walk to 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 synagogue on on saturday mornings because i don't uh, i don't use electricity or cars or anything like that during the sabbath um my choice uh so from friday night till saturday night nothing electronic and i'll start a car nothing so uh, you know and walking to even the closest synagogue to me is uh very difficult and uh hard on my legs to say the least not to mention going for a walk with my beautiful wife um and in the park or just outside so she'd go for walks I'd sit in the car in the parking lot of whatever park we're at or on a bench and watch her walk and she'd come back and we'd walk a little bit to the next bench and not a lot of fun not very cool and not sexy at all she said I'm just kidding so I said I got to get mobile I got to figure out how to do this thing I got to figure out how to make this work so I got I found this device it's called an Atto ATTO uh it's an Atto it's a scooter I have an Atto sport scooter. Um, it's a three-wheel scooter that folds up like a suitcase. I'm telling you, it takes me less than 10 seconds to unfold and to fold this thing up into cart mode, like into where I can sit on it, steer it, and drive it up to 10 kilometers an hour speed. Okay? It's normally around three or four because it's walking speed. But this thing also goes on an airplane. Rolls up to the, I can roll it up, sit on it, drive it right to the gate, fold it up like a, it folds up smaller than a stroller. It has a cover. It goes underneath. They bring it back up on top, and I can now get through the airport. Before, I have to rely on a, the, the wheelchair people coming and the cart people coming, and they're always late, so I'm late. The freedom is unbelievable, my friends. I drove to synagogue this morning to sit with 30 of my close friends and their, and their wives, and their children and their family, whoever showed up outside to pray together on a Saturday morning. Uh, I see certain prayers now since my mother passed for the next year, so I really have to try to make it happen. And it was wonderful. I could get there, and my legs weren't killing me, and I can enjoy the whole process, and I can enjoy the, the chatting and the camaraderie and the community stuff at the end and get back on my scooter and walk back home, ride back home with, with my wife. We had an amazing time. Yesterday we went for a walk in the park. It was unbelievable. And I, you know, I, and here's the thing. You're thinking, well, why can't he drive? And it's Saturday, but he doesn't drive a car, but he can drive a scooter. So this particular scooter has something called a Sabbath setting. Yeah, I know. I kind of scratched my head too. Asked a whole bunch of rabbis that I respect, and they all said, "Yeah, man, if it's it's certified, it's, uh, it was de- it was designed in Israel. It was certified by um, some pretty uh, serious people that certify electro- elect- electrical and electronic devices all over the world. There are refrigerations, refrigerators, and stoves, and all kinds of things that you, home appliances that are that have Sabbath settings. For example, a crock pot. There's a hot water hodl, and so on that have these Sabbath settings. All 
not certified by the same people that certified my scooter. And there's even a sign that goes on the back of the scooter. So if anybody's looking at me going, I know this guy, and he's an Orthodox Jew. What's he doing riding? There's a sign on the back that tells them under what rabbinic uh, rabbinic, um, authority I'm able to ride this thing. So not that it should be anybody's business. They should frankly mind their own business anyway. They should be happy for me that I have mobility. Anyway, I drove this thing today to, to, to my group of guys and, uh, it's called Dominion. So my group of, my, my group of men, uh, to, to, uh, to say our prayers together. There were 45 guys. I drove into the back of the building where they, where they hold these services and on a beautiful patio area and grass area and so on. I drove through the gate. And I saw all of them, and no one said a word. As a matter of fact, guys came up to me and said, that's fabulous. My mother has one of these in Israel, or I have one of these here. I know somebody in Florida, blah, 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 blah. Organizations called Factory Direct Medical. These guys hooked me up because I couldn't find it in Canada. So you can find the Addo scooter in lots of places, but I couldn't find the one that I could put the Sabbath, um, Sabbath software and hardware devices on. Um, I can, I just, I, I'm so excited. And the opportunity for all of you out there that think that scooters are really kind of, you know, gross and sucky and maybe you're younger, uh, like me, young enough that, you know, I, I don't feel like I should be in my, my father or my grandfather's type scooter, but this is super cool. And the pictures that I saw online and the videos all looked like, you know, older people that could walk just fine for the most part, but were commuters. And they were commuting from trains in Europe to their offices or to, to other stations where they picked up their cars or their buses. And these, this thing folds up, goes into the back of your car, breaks into two easy pieces, snaps together, opens and closes in less than 10 seconds. I got legs. It's really three wheels. But I got legs. You could too. I'm not suggesting you have to go out and spend a whole fo- a bunch of money on a, re- on a foldable, retractable, whatever scooter like I did. But, you know, I have different needs. Right? I have I have to have a Sabbath setting. I have to have this. I have to have that in order to be able to actually drive it and use it and take it to the gate of the airplane. But if it's just to get around the neighborhood and your legs are hurting you or your back is bad and you're just kind of frail, don't be afraid to do it. And there's government sponsorships for some of this stuff. You can get some subsidies as well. You've got to get a letter from your doctor and so on. I haven't tried that yet, but I'm hoping I'm going to get something back on my taxes. I think you get a fair amount. You can get, I think, up to 20 or 30%. I could be lying, but I think you get a pretty good chunk of it back uh, if you're in that kind of tax position. And, but, oh, wow. I just can't, I can't, the, the opportunity for me to get out and about and move around, it, 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 it wheels into my office. I fold it up. I plug it in. You can hardly see it. I wheel it out of my, out of my condo into the hallway. I open it in, two, in, in less than 10 seconds, drive it into the elevator, and off I go. It's freedom, whether it's a walker, a wheelchair, a cane, crutches, or a scooter. My dear friends, there are options for all of us to be able to have a life and move around. I can hardly wait to go for a walk. My wife and I used to love walking. Her caller, Pumpkin, by the way. I hate calling her my wife, but she is my wife. Uh, Pumpkin and I, you know, we go down to the water. We used to go down to the water all the time and walk along the beach and walk along the boardwalk in Toronto or any city we were in at the time walk down by the water and kind of hold hands and, you know, sit on a bench and look out at the water and enjoy ourselves, right? It was really quite, it was wonderful, just wonderful. And, you know, now I'm going to be able to do that. I'm not going to have to sit on the bench while she walks along the, the boardwalk and then comes back to get me. And, and we walk to the next bench where I can sit for a minute, like, you know, a guy that can't move. Now I can move. I can scoot her right beside her and we don't miss anything together. I highly, highly, highly encourage you 
If you're in a situation where your mobility is being challenged, go talk to some experts on see what what's available, what, what, what mobility devices might be an option for you. Because I'll tell you, I was really kind of, you know, as my, my mother, may she rest in peace, she would say she poo-pooed the idea, you know, poo-poo, horrible idea, it stinks. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I tried to poo-poo the idea, but... Life changer for me. So I'll share some more scooter stories next week because I'm also looking at uh, mobility access and who I need to scream about when I can't get up and down a curb. We'll see you next week. Have an amazing week. Love you guys and uh, enjoy the sunshine. Be good to the mothers or the or the or the parents in your life that are doing their role tomorrow. It should be every day, but tomorrow especially. We'll see you next week. Yonabud, six forty Toronto.